you're a Dundonian. So, what's what was your first game? Uh, what's your first memory of football, and who was your first hero? The first game that I remember watching on television would have been the 1988 Scottish Cup final between Dundee United and Celtic in the my Ma- primary school. The McAvenny Cup final. Yeah, indeed, Celtic centenary season. Yeah, Dundee United scored first. Celtic got two uh, late goals to win the cup and well, double in their centenary year. With being in North Fife near Dundee, almost everyone in my class supported Dundee or Dundee United. At the time, I wasn't all that into football myself, but after the game, I decided that Celtic was my team and basically have stuck with that for the next 30 plus years. Really. To be fair, you, you are from immigrant stock, aren't you? Yes, yeah. I mean, both my parents are uh, Irish, but I think... Uh, a lot of people seem to think that's probably why I support Celtic, but actually it's just it's purely coincidence. At the time, I had no idea Celtic had any Irish connections oh, when I decided that they were my team back mm. in, probably would have been May 1988. And who would have been the first football heroes that you had or the first players that really stoked your interest? Trying to, try to go back to that centenary year. Not, necessi- not necessarily Celtic players. I just mean, yeah. were there people you remember watching as a kid that thought, yeah, that football, that's the thing for me? I don't know. I mean, I, I can't really put my finger on on it and just say that there's one uh, player that kind of was a real hero growing up. I mean, that said, I think that I mean it's probably it's a bit later, it's a decade on from the centenary season, but I think Henrik Larsson, from a relatively contemporary Celtic fan perspective, is almost unbeatable as sort of hero and icon. Before I knew any French. At primary school in P six and P seven, my hero was Michel Platini, and I and I loved everything, including the Patrick boots, and I just thought he was the complete footballer. I just loved everything about him. Yeah, yeah, he's certainly still. I think that the fact that he still has iconic status in France explains why he may potentially have a way back into the sort of football bureaucracy potentially within the French Football Federation, despite the uh, being kind of brought down along with Blatter uh, to do with the uh, corruption scandal in the last few years. So um, you did French as your degree and you did a PhD in French. So what led you to the football culture of France in those studies when there's so much else about sport in France that, that, that might have taken your fancy? Yeah, indeed, it was other aspects of French society and culture that did kind of take my fancy, partly because sport was singularly absent, and to a large extent is pretty absent from the sorts of things you learn about during a a degree in French, with only very occasional exceptions. I focused mainly on cinema and contemporary politics. My PhD was looking at contemporary cinema and representations of immigrants and kids from uh, suburban housing estates in France. Some of the sorts of social questions I looked at, I became interested within a sporting and footballing context. I mean, over the last few decades, there's been a lot of discussion about sport and national identity, in particular the, the composition and symbolic importance of the the French national uh, men's football team for example that's something I became interested in I was I, I think I've always been interested in football culture in France even from some of my first visits to France I'd get a French football magazine or two when I was over there 
when I lived and worked in France, which I did for a bit over three years, I'd regularly go to matches and became interested in the sort of similarities and differences between football culture in France and parts of the UK. And what was it about? Because I think football occupies a really interesting place in French society insofar as it, it doesn't capture the public imagination to the same extent as it does in Britain. And it has much deeper competition from things like rugby, especially in La France Profonde, as they call it, or, or, or cycling and the Tour de France, um, but, and other sports that compete for the public attention in a way that, 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 that don't in Britain. What is it about the nature of French football culture, do you think, that marks it out as being significant or different or worthy of study? I think France is a country that's played a massive role in shaping football on a European and global level. I mean, when you think about it, FIFA, UEFA, both founded by French men, French uh, sporting bureaucrats and journalists that are responsible for the the World Cup, the European Championships, the main European club tournaments, the European Footballer of the Year awards, and so on. Yet France has never had a massive number of professional football teams for a country of its size. I mean, it's got probably between half and a third of the number of professional football teams that we have in the UK, for example. And is that is and what is the football pyramid like in in France? Because I I spend a lot of time in France, as you know, or I say a lot of time, usually about a fortnight or three weeks every year in France, and I. I go looking for kind of football culture where I can. Now, perhaps where I'm going in the west of France or in central Paris, which is generally where we go to, uh, football culture doesn't really impinge that much. But all the local communities tend to have a running track and a football pitch. Uh, They tend to have a local team. The local team tends to kind of feature in the local paper or in local media. Um, what's, What's the football pyramid like in comparison to Britain? The top two tiers of French football, Ligue 1 and Ligue 2, are fully professional. You've got 20 teams in each of those two leagues. But the third tier, which is a national league known as Le Championnat National, or I think National 1 now, it's generally referred to as National, it's a league in which only four, normally between, normally about four of the teams are professional because teams that are relegated from League 2, the second tier, to the third tier, they can retain their professional status for up to two years. So basically, France has a maximum of about 44 professional football teams at any one time, which is, from a UK perspective, quite a small number. And actually, it's only in about the last 30 years that France has had a fully national second tier of domestic football. So despite the fact that France has played a, a massive role in shaping the European and global sport of football, it's taken longer than you might expect to embrace professional football at other levels. The French Football Federation is celebrating its centenary this year, which means that it's about half a century younger than the English Football Association. Football in France in the top tier of uh, club football only became professional in the 1930s which again is about half a century behind uh, England for example. And do you think we're the only two oddballs that were watching FC Red Star and Concarneau in the Championnat a few weeks ago in Britain? I, 
I wonder about it. Yeah, I think <laughs> because I, it's I, it, isn't it fascinating that you you introduced me to this, but it's fascinating that that the third and fourth tiers of French football stream all the games out on YouTube, and you can see there's full exposure to the lower reaches of the professional league. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure about the fourth tier, but in, in Nestor the third tier, the as you see it, on YouTube, you can watch live uh, coverage of all the the games. It's basically, I think, funded by the French Football Federation, and I think it's it, it, it's really great. I think that the they probably have fairly low viewing figures outside of France, but I don't think that's the that's the point uh, really. It's good to see this sort of level of football getting. Uh, this sort of uh, exposure, really. Um, are you aware of the um, the story? I'm just looking at it now. If you're wondering, I'm being ill-mannered, John. I'm not uh, looking at you in this Skype thing. Are you aware of the story of the famous of the Liverpool player David Burrows? Wh- which story is this? David Burrows, who played right or left back for Liverpool, and uh, I think he won a championship in that in the Kenny Dalglish team. He he's now a successful businessman in the Dordogne. And his last game was playing local league football in the Dordogne. Oh, really? wasn't aware of that. Yeah, it's, I must send you. It's great. But anyway, we'll edit that out of the podcast. Uh, I must send you that. Um, so you give a fascinating paper at the um, the Football Collective Conference in Sheffield where you talked about the, the, the this this amazing curiosity, which is, is it FC Red Star or Red Star FC? Yeah, officially known as Red Star FC, but the the name's slightly changed a few times over its century and event of existence. Yeah, and 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 you also talked about the wider p- culture of football in Paris and some of those strange contradictions of Parisian football clubs or the the three professional clubs in Paris. So, could you talk us through that 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 paradox, you know, um, and also talk us through the that that, that the the quirkiness of of FC or Red Star FC? Yeah, I mean, Paris, compared to a lot of major European cities, actually doesn't have all that many football teams. It's about three decades since the last time there were two teams from the Paris area in Ligue 1, the top tier of French football. Currently, there's one team in Ligue 1, Paris Saint-Germain, one team in Ligue 2, Paris FC, and one team in National. Red Star FC, who played actually just outside of Paris in the Seine-Saint-Denis area in a working-class neighbourhood called Saint-Ouen. One of the real paradoxes is that actually when Red Star were formed, they played just around the corner from the Eiffel Tower, but of the three teams I've just mentioned, they're actually the only one not to feature the Eiffel Tower on their crest. Yeah, but what did people do in Paris before um, PS, PSG or PSG were came into being. Was Paris just not a, a football city? And if it wasn't, why was that? I, I think Paris wasn't really a football footballing city. PSG were founded in 1970 as a result of a referendum run by the French Football Federation, which asked the population of Paris if they wanted a big football club. Because in the 60s, Paris had become a bit of a footballing. Uh, desert racing Paris had encountered major uh, financial yeah, difficulties. Yeah. Red Star were struggling for a lot of their existence. Red Star have gone up and down between the top two tiers of French football. Within the last five or so years, it's generally been going up and down between the second and third tier. They actually dropped a bit lower around the turn of the millennium. 
one of several periods in their history where they've come close to going uh, bankrupt. Uh, so I think sport has not really established itself in Paris as much as in other major cities in Europe. Some of the work that's been done about sport in Paris by people like David Ronk, Jeff Hare, has, have, have argued that really Paris hasn't... Uh, as often been just somewhere with an identity as a capital of France rather than the same sort of city-based identity or pride that you may be associated with provincial cities, in part because France is a very centralised nation and over the years there have been a lot of people moving to Paris from elsewhere in France that may still maintain pride in their uh, provincial roots, for example. And was it also the case that things like uh, cycling particularly indoor cycling, as they say in the cycling podcast, velodrome cycling, um, were, were quite popular in, in Paris as a form of professional sport? Well, I think it's hard to say that professional sport at club level of any sort has really had a long and prominent history in Paris in right. the way that it has in other cities, there have been various rugby clubs that have kind of gone up and down a bit over the years. Currently, there are two top division rugby teams from the Paris area in the top tier of French rugby. I think France, especially going back to the first half of the 20th century, like certain other countries, was a bit slow to embrace professional sports, was a bit cynical about it in some ways, and I think that it's maybe at times struggled to find space for um, sporting stadiums right in the heart of Paris, because historically there have been very few major sporting venues right in the heart of Paris. I mean, if we look at places like the Parc des Princes, which has been home to PSG for several decades now, is only just within the Paris Ring Road that delineates the separation between central Paris and the suburbs, which aren't officially part of the, the, the city. Um, the Stade de France is noticeably north of the Ring Road, so in suburban Paris and the Seine-Saint-Denis area, a little bit further north of the Stade Bauer, where Red Star FC have played. I mean, as I said, Red Star initially played just around the corner from the Eiffel Tower, but from for over a century have played just north of Paris. So historically, a lot of the most important sporting venues have been around the edge of Paris rather than right in the centre of Paris. Yeah, again, as I said, as I said in the first aborted podcast, which didn't save, I think you've shown amazing maturity, not to mention James McFadden's goal in 2007 for Scotland when you beat France in the Parc des Princes. Uh, known on BBC Scotland's Off the Ball programme as a JFK moment for all Scottish football fans. Yeah, yeah. Uh... It, yeah, it, it's, it certainly was a fantastic moment. I think Scotland beat that France team home and away in what would, I presume that would have been, would that have been European? Euro qualifiers, yeah. Championships qualifiers. Yeah. And unfortunately, you have to go back to France 1998 for the last time a Scottish national team qualified for the final of a major tournament. That's very magnanimous of you. Um, could you tell me about the, the role that PSG play in 
modern French football's kind of headspace. Insofar as I ask that question, because when I go to France and I and I go to Western France, I'll see cars with a, a 92 number plate from the Ile de France, and the people getting out of them will be wearing Marseille tops. And I see evidence of Marseille fandom all across France, but sometimes relatively little evidence of PSG fandom. So where do they sit in the kind of cultural map of French football fandom? Well, if you look at some studies that have been done into the sort of demographics of people who follow PSG, they're generally seen as being a bit more middle class in terms of the their average supporter. They play in a relatively affluent area of Paris where football at times has been a sort of unwelcome intrusion to the rel- relatively tranquil surroundings uh, of the uh, western uh, central Paris. Uh, PSG have increasingly, since the investment from Qatar with QSI since 2011, Looking, been trying to look above and beyond France uh, th- via the slogan, slogan "Revenge plus grand," let's dream bigger, with aspirations that are both about going further in the Champions League, which they haven't really achieved as yet, and also brand exposure in Europe and beyond. And indeed, one of their uh, leading directors a few years ago talked about his aspiration to see PSG become a lifestyle brand. So clearly these aspirations, on one hand they're sporting, on the other hand they're very much about the commercial financial uh, side of things and boosting brand exposure, notably in the Asian market. And so the the, the acquisition of Neymar uh, as a kind of brand synergy with Nike and Air Jordan and the Qatari family um, was a really interesting kind of coming together with a lot of different constituencies within the kind of sports industry. Yeah, and uh, one could say that probably the same sort of thing was being attempted, albeit not quite on the same level, with signings such as that of Ibrahimovic, which I think goes back to 2012. I mean, OK, Beckham was signed... uh, basically on loan towards the very end of his career. But again, this is kind of recruiting superstars to boost their global uh, profile. In terms of wealth, PSG are at a similar level to some of the biggest names in European football. But in terms of what they've achieved within the Champions League, you could argue that they're actually underachievers thus far. There hasn't, they haven't really, I think they, should be a side that looks to get to the semi-finals at least on a semi-regular basis. Well, I think basically that's the aspirations of those owning PSG, but it's something that they haven't yet achieved. And what about um, uh, immigrant France? You know, we we often hear, you know, the Front National or or people of the French right talk about uh, uh, rugby as being the the game of the true France, that France performed, but they also kind of denigrate football as being the immigrant game. And the Bonlieu, as you've pointed out, and and other writers pointed out, have produced a huge number of of players, particularly the Paris region, has produced a a fascinating number of players. What does, who do immigrant France support? Does PSG play into that, or, or, or is immigrant France focused elsewhere? At times, PSG has been seen by some people as very middle class and by some people of immigrant background as being almost racist, if you like. And something's been written about in a number of academic articles. 
historically behind maybe it's changed a bit now but there used to be kind of beyond one goal ultras groups that were in one end quite diverse and the other end a bit right wing shall we say so viewed from the peripheries of paris psg have i think as jeff Hare has argued been seen as a bit bourgeois and there, i mean there have been all sorts of tensions historically between the less well-off peripheries of paris and central Paris. Marseille is a significant location in France, being on the Mediterranean, a point of arrival for uh, a lot of people from all sorts of different parts of Africa, uh, other parts of the world, sort of immigrant point of arrival, a city with a more working class core than Paris. So I think that to a certain extent explains why you get people in the fringes of Paris who might still be wearing Marseille shirts, which in some ways is a bit of a hangover from Marseille being a French side that did well in European club competitions in the late 80s and early 90s. And would there be an influence there of Zizou as well? Uh, you know, uh, that he's a, a, a son of Marseille and someone who seemed to occupy this interesting, you know, bifurcated space. You know, he, he, he has one foot in either camp. Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, he's from the La Castellane uh, estate in a not-too-well-off part of Marseille. Never actually played for no. Olympique de Marseille. He was a Bordeaux lad, wasn't he? Started off, I think, Cannes. in the set up at Cannes yeah. before moving to Bordeaux and then uh, moving to Italy uh, and Spain. Zidane's a fascinating figure because he's somebody who is both of immigrant descent, both of his parents, Algerian immigrants, Suzanne himself born in Marseille, but he's somebody with real wide street, sort of mainstream popularity in France. This is somebody regularly voted the most popular yeah, person yeah. in France in poll annual, or I think might be every six months polls in the Journal du Dimanche, uh, a leading uh, French Sunday paper. So he's at the, on the same level as various uh, figures associated with charities, good causes and so on. So his appeal goes well beyond kids who share his North African roots or who've grown up in impoverished housing estates. It's a lot broader than that. And tell us about uh, Red Star. What what led you to Red Star and why do you think they're a, a compelling story for scholars of football and, and just a wider football and public to know about? They're a fairly old club that founded in the last years of the, the 19th century. They're a club who's had a turbulent history. They've, as I said, gone up and down between various leagues. Their ground, Stade Bauer, is a bit of a ramshackle stadium in some ways. Three sides of it closed due to uh, health and safety regulations. It's just the main stand that's currently open. And some ways, as I argued at the Football Collective Conference in Sheffield, they're a bit of an antidote to Paris Saint-Germain. So PSG, very much a sort of rich, flashy club. And Red Star are, in a lot of ways, the complete opposite, playing in quite a sort of working-class neighbourhood outside of Paris. A club that wants to get back to competing in the second tier, though one of the problems they face is currently their ground isn't yeah. good enough 
and when they've got back into the second tier, they've had to play an hour and a half's drive away in Beauvais or in the Stade de France rugby stadium at the Stade Jean Bois, across the road from the Parc des Princes. And one of the things I talked about a bit in Sheffield is they're, they're a club with various sort of tensions and contradictions themselves because on one hand, they're seen as being, or they like to be seen as being quite progressive, a key part of this sort of working class and diverse neighbourhood. But at the same time, some of their commercial strategies in recent years have been heavily criticised by their own fan groups. The, the prices of replica tops, the fact that this season's replica top has black sleeves rather than just being the tri- almost traditional all green. Though that said, there have been times in Red Star's history where they've had a green top with white sleeves or green white vertical stripes, but a number of fans reacted strongly against the launch this season of a green top with black sleeves, which cost something like 85 or 90 euros. And indeed, a fan organisation has launched a sort of supporters top that features the more traditional green and white vertical stripes, which they sell for a mere 25 euros near the ground. It's my perception that it may be wrong, or you may be about to prove me wrong, that certainly through friends of mine or acquaintances of mine who live in Paris, that uh, Red Star have acquired a kind of almost hipsterish support or occupy a hipsterish space among those who are interested in football, uh, almost in the manner of San Pauli. Would that be fair to say? To a certain extent, but I wouldn't say they're quite as iconic and uh, uh, sort of progressive left-wing political uh, hipsterish club as San Pauli, Union Berlin, or maybe even Livorno in Italy in that I'm not sure that their status and identity is terribly well known to fans outside of France in the way that San Paoli are a reference point for a lot of people in Europe who know their European football. I think Red Star haven't entered the, the sort of footballing consciousness outside of France as much. I think because of being older, because of being a sort of underdog that's struggled over the years, they are a club that appeals to a sense of nostalgia in a way that the relatively young PSG, were founded in 1970, don't really have... They, they, they can't tap into quite the same sense of nostalgia nostalgia by virtue of their uh, youth, really. Um, what effect has... Uh, sorry, France has had uh, multi-channel TV a little bit longer than Britain has. Uh, Canal Plus has been really important in the development of sport and television in 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 France. Um, what role has satellite television and multi-channel television played in either the, the growth of the game or the shrinking of the game in France? Well, Canal Plus, founded in the mid-80s as a subscription uh, television channel, played a massive role because... From the start, there were kind of two main things that Canal Plus used to sell their satellite dishes and decoders. One was being able to see films more rapidly after they came out in the cinema. And secondly, it was live sport. And indeed, there's relatively little live football televised in France before the arrival of Canal Plus in the mid-80s. I mean, beyond the French Cup final and national team games, there wasn't actually all that much football on French TV at all. I mean, nowadays things have evolved a bit and indeed 
in the, the coming years, Canal Plus may have a lot less live football. I mean, progressively it has in terms of Ligue 1, and people, fans in France, have reacted negatively to the fact that they need to have deals with three or four different providers and able to in order to be able to watch all their teams' potential matches. I mean, like we have in the UK, there are several different subscription channels that show live matches in the top tier. Things are a little bit different with Champions League and domestic cup competitions as well. Uh, has Sky beaming in games from Italy and uh, certainly the English Premier League is, has much more profile now than it had when I first started going to France seriously 25 years ago uh, but I've been going to France for about 35 years now and certainly the the elevation of the English Premier League has been really remarkable over the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah, I mean, within certain French pay TV channels the likes of Canal Plus and uh, BN Sport uh, who are uh, uh, an outfit funded by uh, funded from the Middle East that have played an increasing role. It, it's often been in recent years that they've tried to use rights to La Liga, Serie A, and the English Premiership to show off their uh, their offering. And I think there's a degree of envy among certain types of French football fans when they look at football culture in the UK, in particular uh, in England, and not necessarily just in the top fight, when it comes to fan culture uh, and so on, because there are a lot of people who might be interested in football in one level in France, but the culture of going to a match is not as much of a thing in France as it is in the UK football isn't as much part of the public consciousness in France. I mean, in th th there are so many public figures in the UK. People know what football team they support. People know what the favourite football team is of public figures, such as prime ministers in the, in the UK and so on. But it's not as easy to kind of find that sort of information in France. Uh, supporting and following a football team isn't something that is done uh, as much. Some people might just kind of casually follow their local team and not take as much interest in domestic club football in Ligue 1, Ligue 2 level in France. Is it reflective of the significantly deeper regionalisation of French society? You know, is that, does that, does that, uh, that, that idea that there was no such thing as national news in France within the kind of British or American context until the outbreak of the First World War because France was effectively still a series of regions tied centrally to Paris uh, for administrative purposes. Uh, you know, if you look at the you know the, the sheer scale of commitment to football and football fandom, for instance, in Brittany, or in El, and it, uh, you've noted in, in places like Saint Etienne or or or, or Lyon or places like that, there tends to be pockets of football culture in the same way as there are pockets of rugby culture in certain places. Would that be fair to say? I think France, there's a degree of truth to that in that France traditionally has been heavily centralised around Paris and it's really in the three decades after the end of the Second World War that France underwent a fairly dramatic and fairly belated period of urbanisation because in terms of area, France is a country several times bigger than the UK but has a roughly similar population. Some people argue that the relatively small size of provincial cities in relation to the capital city goes some way to explain 
the the re- reasons why there aren't so many professional teams. Yeah, yeah. Things are a bit more complicated than that in that a lot of teams, vast majority of teams in France, they don't own their stadiums, which has an impact on their potential match day revenue in some ways, because a lot, a lot of major football stadiums in France are owned by the city council. Uh, and we, we, France is basically, when it comes to football, a nation of one club cities. There isn't... Well, there hasn't been a, a Paris area derby in the top league of French football for about 30 years. Things that are seen as derby matches in France, they include, for example, Saint-Étienne-Lyon is in some ways the most hotly contested rivalry. But these are sides that are, I mean, I can't remember in terms of distance. I'm 40 pretty sure it's over, it's over 50 miles, but it's yeah. like an hour and a half train ride uh, apart. So these aren't, it's, if, from my perspective, as somebody born in Dundee, where you've got two clubs that are about 250 yards apart, there isn't really a proper city derby uh, in, in, in French football, and there hasn't been for quite some time. You know, I haven't already done an abortive podcast, and we've talked about a lot of these things. It struck me as I was travelling in here today, as I travelled, it was the other day actually, I was dropping my mum off the airport, and, and we passed Goodison at Anfield, just by virtue of the fact that we had a couple of messages to do. And, you know, those are two top flight clubs literally across a park. And then it started me thinking about the M62 corridor or even just the greater Strathclyde area. The sheer number of professional or semi-professional clubs in the old industrial heartlands of the north of England and the, 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 the central belt of Scotland is remarkable when put in comparison to you know, the paucity or lack of clubs in any great depth right across France. Yeah, I think, I think that's, a, that's a really good point. Uh, when I was at the Football Collective Conference in Glasgow in 2018, I remember going for a run the day before the conference and took in something like, I think, about five present or former uh, football stadiums along the way, the site of the original Hampden Park, the current Hampden Park, Third Lanark's old ground, Park. Shawfield's Park, now Greyhound Stadium where Clyde used to play, and then Celtic Park. That was out and back. That was about seven or eight miles. France, and, uh, sorry, and if you beat the Celtic Park, another half a mile would have taken, would have taken you past Shettleston Juniors as well. Yeah, indeed. Indeed, there are one or two other places. If I extended the run a bit, I could have uh, taken in. France, I think a lot of it maybe goes back to sort of industrial history because a lot of leading British clubs were founded in the Victorian era uh, and have links to certain industries in some cases but with France having not as many large cities especially outside of Paris I think that maybe goes some way to explaining why they didn't have as many clubs being founded in in this area in in this, this era rather some leading clubs have associations with the UK indeed Le Havre, reputedly France's oldest football club, they play in light blue and navy blue half shirts, which represent the colours of Oxford and Cambridge universities. And their club anthem, well worth going onto YouTube to listen to this, it is played to the same tune as God Save the Queen, but has totally different lyrics about being the oldest club in uh, France uh, and so on. Quite 
bizarre in some ways. And they've got a bizarre stadium as well, which sits out in docklands, and uh, it, it, it looks it, it some sort of futuristic, uh, uh, what do you call it, flying saucer that exists these horrible old marshlands or docklands on the outside of a very industrial port city. Yeah, yeah, and some of these maybe uh, at odds with its in its environment, say uh, somewhat. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, listen. Um, I often, I think I've asked you about this, but I'll just throw it across and we can discuss it very quickly. Have you seen the film Concrete Football on Netflix? The documentary about immigrant communities in France playing three and four side games on concrete playgrounds. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's well worth a watch. There, there are a number of documentaries on uh, Netflix that look at some of these sorts of uh, socio-political aspects of football and, and I, mean, I think it's just one of the things I've said is that, that even though Paris only has one major football team a relatively high proportion of players in Ligue 1 are from the Paris area and indeed it's probably the case that the, the, the majority of teams in Ligue 1 no matter where in France, they're based. Will have scouts in the Paris area. Will have structures linked to their own uh, academies, looking for players in this area. Because in the Saint-Denis area, uh, uh, near the Stade de France, near where Red Star play, there are lots of clubs that have lots and lots of junior sides that have a, a track record of developing some excellent players like Thierry Henry, uh, Kylian Mbappe come from roughly the, the, this, the same area. And I think that that documentary you mentioned, Concrete Football, does a relatively good job of, of looking at football in the context of urban France, inequalities, the divide by, between city centres and peripheries. There's another documentary that I'd strongly recommend. I can't remember what it's called in English, but in French it is Les Bleus, l'histoire d'une autre France, literally meaning the blues, the story of another France, looking at debates about football and national identity uh, in France, partly through the lens of the 1998 World Cup triumph, which was heralded as a symbol of a modern, diverse and tolerant France at the time. There's a brilliant documentary called Les Yeux des Bleus, which was made by Canal Plus. Um, I, I watched it shamefully on my honeymoon, which we started the day after France won the World Cup in 1998. And it was one of those first access all areas behind the scenes look at what the the, the 98 team was doing. You know, so there was that you know they, they were in uh, Lilian Thuram's hotel room the night he scored two in the semi final. They were in the um, dressing room as Zizou uh, comes in and and and. Uh, after he'd been sent off against was it Saudi Arabia. Yeah, for yeah. An opponent. I don't yeah. know whether it, it's, it's quite a sort of paradoxical thing because it show, it's really a symbol of how the French national team at certain stages is given privileged access to certain forms of media at the same time as being a lot more reticent to work with others because in okay they let kind of plus in behind closed doors for this flying the wall documentary that you've just mentioned but at the same time in the run-up to 1998 there was a real sort of anger or frustration even 
in the minutes after the World Cup triumph from the national team uh, coach Emé Jacquet towards L'Equipe, the French national sports daily, which had been very critical of Emé Jacquet and the French national team in the months leading up to their 1998 World Cup triumph, basically saying that they weren't a team that would kind of gave a lot of reason to be hopeful. They lacked a clear style of play. They didn't. They weren't exciting to watch and they weren't really giving the French nation something to be passionate about. Well, I thought it was extraordinary, the scenes that I saw. You know, we, we went for our dinner and a, a, a drink and we were, we were in Brittany on our honeymoon. And even in Brittany, you know, the extraordinary outpouring of kind of patriotism or, or, or the embracing of that team was almost instantaneous. It was, it was fascinating to see. Yeah, yeah, and one of the things I think is sometimes missed when people discuss the 1998 World Cup team, one of the reasons a sort of phenomenon that you're describing happened is because of diversity at a variety of different levels. Often the focus is on, the, it's a team known as Black Blanc Beurre, so black as in French Caribbean, uh, West African descent of players, Blanc as in white, uh, and then Burr, as in uh, descendants of North African uh, immigrants. But also there's a sort of national or regional diversity. There were iconic players in that 1998 side from various parts of France with a strong sense of identity. You had Stéphane Guivarche with a very typically Breton yeah, name. Yeah. He now sells swimming pools in outside Camper. Yeah, yeah, not really, didn't go on to great things at a club level outside of France, really flopped at Newcastle, for example. Flopped at Rangers. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. And then you've got other players from that era, Vicente Lizarazu, Didier Deschamps from the Southwest, Zidane, as we've mentioned, from the Marseille area, Franck Leboeuf, I think also from the Marseille area, if I remember correctly, Laurent Blanc from the kind of the south like near Alès. So players from all sorts of different parts of France. Emé Jacquet himself associated with the Saint-Étienne era, era and a sort of image of French footballing nostalgia from the 1970s. So it's a team that kind of tapped into a variety of discourses about the sort of past, present and future of French football and France as a nation, really. Thank you.